So the map is not the territory. It's really only one of five points I want to make today. Uh, it's my five-pointed theology, uh, my personal philosophy in 15 minutes, my liberal worldview in a nutshell. One, the map is not the territory. This expression, the map is not the territory, is attributed to Polish-American scientist and philosopher Albert Korzybski and became a premise of Korzybski's general semantics and in neuro-linguistic programming, which kind of evolved out of that. And uh, Korzybski basically wrote in the 30s and 40s, but... Uh, but his influence has gone on. In certain ways, it's faded, as always happens, but in other ways, he influenced Gregory Bateson and many others. His point is that individual people do not, in general, have access to absolute knowledge of reality, but in fact, only have access to a set of beliefs they've built up over time about reality, like the villagers in the dark with an elephant people's beliefs about reality and their awareness of things, the map, are not reality itself or everything they could be aware of, the territory. My favorite seminary professor, Bernie Bernard, I guess everybody called him, Bernie Loomer, would point out regularly, my ideas about reality are not reality. And, but more concretely, to make it more concrete, and I mean, you can say that, but here's the thing. I think most of us recognize eventually or at our peril if we don't. My idea of my spouse is not my spouse. My spouse is another thing entirely from my ideas about her. My idea about the president of the church, my grade out, is not my grade out. Now, on a broader scale, religions are maps, but they're not reality. But they point to reality. They help, maybe, if you see that they're only pointing. They're not the reality. There's a well-known Zen Buddhist saying, don't confuse the moon with the finger pointing at the moon. Language is like a finger pointing at the moon. says the koan, but the moon, but it's not the moon. Language is as distant from reality as the finger is from the moon. So that's one. Number two, the power of projection and how totally it skews everything in our lives, in our thinking, in our vision. We see the world through lenses more often than not, we see more of the lens than of objective reality. When someone says the world is going to hell, this tells us more about the person saying it than it tells us about the world. People will cheat you whenever they get the chance. The speaker is probably a cheater. Considered also George W. Bush and Osama bin Laden. In many ways, the two leaders were mirror images of each other, but they didn't see it. They projected all their dark anger, hostility, uh, mayhem-making on the other. 
and they became involved in mutual projection. Another example, Hitler accused the Jews of trying to conquer Europe for profane and insidious purposes. But this is pure projection. That's what Hitler wanted to do and did a preemptive war in his mind to prevent these others from doing what was really his projected uh, intention. The mob that stormed our capital a month ago projected their propensity for mayhem onto Antifa, who were nowhere near the scene of the crime. How do we transcend this? How do we get beyond this projection? Well, Carl Jung once wrote that um, all relationships start as projection, that when you meet somebody, you know, you project uh, Adonis or Aphrodite if, if they're, you know, they're a turn-on, you think they're excitingly attractive to you, um, and maybe you project, you know, strength, purpose, intention. They remind you of your benevolent great-aunt or of your mean-spirited uh, next-door name, and you end up projecting that. When you meet the person right off, you project all this onto them. That's all you can do. But as Jung pointed out, sometimes they evolve into relationships, and the projections begin to be withdrawn, and you get to actually know the person because you are being present to them, not your projection. And it's a matter of imagination. To be able to stand in somebody's shoes means you have the imagination to be, to engage them, engage their reality. What would it be like? The power of imagination, number three. This is our salvation. Einstein once wrote, imagination is more important than knowledge because knowledge is limited and imagination encircles the world. We are co-creators in life. According to Genesis in the Bible, God created humanity in God's own image, or as it says in chapter 1, in the image of God, he created us, male and female, he created them. Image, nation, imagination is the key. People have evolved out of the elements, out of the mud, the creative power, the spirit that generates and informs life has endowed people with this incredible facility, imagination. Imagination gives us the ability to communicate symbolically. It gives us the power to craft a Midsummer Night's Dream or the Brandenburg Concertos, to imagine them. We get in touch, when rather, we get in touch with our imaginative creative power, we are contacting the divine within. If the first stages of human awakening involved separating ourselves from nature, developing our sense of autonomy as a species, and discovering our ability for remaking the world, the next stages of evolution will require reintegrating ourselves with nature, exploring our deep bonding with one another and with the cosmos, and developing our capacity to act in harmony with the universe. Shakespeare, Bach, Alfred Korzybski, they have all been into this. As co-creators in life, we have the power to organize and order life however we want, 
We can organize it to enforce conformity, predictability, and profit. Or we could organize around self-awareness, creativity, and sustainability. We have a choice. We have imagination, which means we have a choice. Number four, religion is poetry, is about poetry. Mahatma Gandhi once wrote, I believe in the fundamental truth of all great religions of the world. I believe that they are all God-given, and I believe that they were necessary for the people to whom these religions were revealed. And I believe that if only we could all of us read the scriptures of the different faiths from the standpoints of the followers of these faiths, we would find that they were at bottom all one and all helpful to one another. It's all here. Everything in religion is all relating to what's happening here and now. Preoccupation with the afterlife is a trap, an error, an illusion. All the religious language is pointing to realities that exist here among us right now in our midst. As is written in the Gnostic Gospel of St. Thomas, number 113, the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth and people do not see it. Fundamentalists keep confusing the map, language, with the territory. They keep literalizing it and enforcing it in, their, in, in the world or trying to. Thus, they think of eternity as a long, 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 long time. But it is not. Eternity has nothing to do with time. It is out of time. And what is time? Well, that's a good question. I mean, Martin Heidegger spent a lifetime trying to figure it out, and near his death he said, well, I think I just about figured it out. Um, but he never shared that. Plato defined time as the moving image of eternity. Such descriptions recognize eternity as right here when we learn to see it in our midst. Spiritual practices are those practices, like the general semantics of Alfred Korzybski, that help us learn how to see the eternal and the glorious and the divine in our midst. It is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. That's William Carlos Williams, the Unitarian poet. It's difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Carlos Williams wrote this in his epic work, Prince Patterson, about the middle-class city in New Jersey where he practiced medicine and where many of his patients lived. He wrote it over many years. He described his research, his methods, his creative process this way. I started to make trips to the area. I walked around the streets. I went on Sundays in the summer when the people were using the park, and I listened to their conversation as much as I could. I saw whatever they did, and I made it part of the poem. 
Now, countries do not usually think of poetry as providing them with national security, but it does. It connects people to a particular place. It cements their love and attachment to the people and to the folkways and forms there. As uh, Patterson, New Jersey, for William Carlos Williams, Witter Brenner for Santa Fe, Mary Oliver for Cape Cod. Religion is poetry. The Bhagavad Gita, described by Gandhi as an allegory in which the battlefield is the soul and Arjuna, man's higher impulses, struggling against evil. Or consider the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs in the Jewish scriptures. Rise up, my love, my fair one, for lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come. Set me as a seal upon thy heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it, for my beloved is mine and I am his. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Or think of the beautiful imagery in Plato's Myth of the Cave. Hmm. People kind of locked up in this subterranean, is it a dungeon, this subterranean hole, chained, looking at shadows on the wall, and when they could, if they but knew, get up, throw off their chains, and walk out of the cave into the light. The current New Yorker has a funny image of all these people in a kind of a dark side inside around a table looking at their cell phones and there's, there's, a way and there's an area to out to the light of consciousness outside. Well, these are beautiful images of the human condition. There are many. Think of Midsummer Night's Dream, Act 5, or Handel's Messiah, or Our Town by the American playwright Thornton Wilder. Studying religion as poetry enables one to see its imagery more easily. One of my favorites is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. and um, He wrote a lot of Christian apologetics, but my favorite isn't that at all, The Great Divorce. It's just a fantasy, and he and others are on a bus ride, and which I guess is heaven, and they find themselves... They're, they disembark in this area. It always reminded me of the Tahoe Basin in northern New Mexico in the Rio Grande Valley. With coming down from the San Cristo Mountains in this long, broad, green plain. And the people get off the bus, and coming down from the mountain are other are spirit guides who are going to escort them over the mountain. A paradise to it. And uh, except in every case, that guide is their worst enemy in life, the uh, business partner who cheated them, the uh, person who uh, left them holding the bag or what have you. And people, one after another, prefer holding their grudges in hell to reconciliation, heaven on earth, here and now. I remember at a very difficult time in my life, my minister said to me, Steve, would you rather be right or healed? Letting go of that need to be right is the beginning of hell. Earl Fleehart knew poetry, and he knew the poetry of life. 
and spoke it as together we approached his death last spring. Wow, what a privilege to be part of that experience. Unitarian Universalism understands religion as poetry and poetry as religion. Consider a poem of E.E. E. Cummings that I often read at weddings. Love is the every only God who spoke this earth so glad and big, even a thing all small and sad man may his mighty briefness dig. For love beginning means return, seas who could sing so deep and strong, one querying wave will whitely yearn for each last shore and home come young. So truly perfectly disguised by merciful love whispered were, completes its brightness with your eyes, any illimitable star. Or consider Walt Whitman, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, William Carlos Williams again, Yesay Barnwell, composer and arranger for Sweet Honey in the Rock. All of these poets speak brightly of our faith. All were Unitarian Universals. Finally, five, in keeping with this idea that it's all here now, that this is it, consider that in the Western tradition, the verb to be is actually the name of the deity. In Exodus 2, you know, Moses is his shepherd. He's wandering around with his sheep out in the wilderness, and uh, he has this uh, confrontation with this burning bush, which freaks him out, and he tries to get away, and, uh, and, he, and he, it speaks to him. It says, let my people go. Go. And he goes, no, no, you got, I don't know, I don't want to do this. That's not me. No, but you're the guy. He goes, no, you can't be serious. I have a speech impediment. I can't even talk, hardly lead. Uh, and Yahweh keeps saying, no, no, it's you. So finally, Moses says, well, okay, who shall I say sent me? I mean, go back and say, oh, yeah, who shall I say sent me? Tell them, I am that I am sent you. So what is God's self-definition in the Bible? Did God say, I've always been around, I'm going to be here for the end of time? No, that would have given reality to the past and future, that a reality they don't deserve. God said, I am that I am. No time here, just presence. God is presence. Be still, wrote the psalmist, and know that I am God. My mentor, Rabbi Jerome Molino's favorite passage in the whole Hebrew scriptures. Be still and know that I am God. God equaled the verb to be the sin qua non of our lives, being, being alive, being awake. There's a story about the Buddha when people encountered him, and he was preaching all around India for 35 years, and people would hear him do a presentation. They'd go, they would, they would often ask, not who are you, but it was so such an amazing experience. They would go, what are you? Are you a saint? He would go, no. Are you a god? No. Well, what are you? To which the Buddha replied, 
I'm awake. The religious impulse is the impulse to be awake, to awaken our human potential, which is truly amazing, and all the more amazing when linked with the shared efforts of many spiritual siblings in the service of the sacred, the sacred earth, for instance, and its preservation. To be is to be awake, alive, here in the present moment, to experience reality unmediated by language, the territory, instead of seeing only the map. Or as it says in our UU Purposes and Principles, direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. All this religious literature and poetry is designed to help people see life more in terms of verbs and less in terms of nouns, not so much things as its life's movement, to see the pattern the interconnected whole, the interdependent web. To look beyond the moving image of time or through it to the eternity in the midst of which we also live, which is available to us whenever we wake up. Religion's all about helping people become aware of that and to get hit to it by organizing their life to see in this unified, holistic manner. So. The map is not the territory. Most of what we see is a function of our own projection. The key to withdrawing our projections is imagination. Think of religious myth and language as poetry. And God is nearer to you than your nose to your face. God's within. It is our consciousness. To be is to know God. It is that simple and it is that difficult. So it is, and so may it be. Amen.